Everyone else, uh, <clears throat> fasten your pew belts this morning. Hey. <laughs> We're in for a ride. We're going to be through a lot of scripture this morning. Um, I apologize that it's not going to be on the screen, and, I'm, and you're not going to be able to turn to all those places. So you just have to listen real closely, take good notes. Um, Karen is in El Paso, and, uh, and so some of the stuff that I'm going to share with you this morning just really came across... Um, my desk like yesterday afternoon, and so bear with me here, but I think by the end of the day, you'll be, you'll have a really clear understanding of what it means when God says, when Jesus says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Um, And so if you're just joining us, um, welcome. We're really glad that you're here. Um, We are in a series on prayer. because the desire for, for us as a church is to bring prayer and the ministry of prayer into in to equality with the Word of God. Uh, prayer is just as important as, um, as God's Word is to Him. And so we want to just continue to elevate that. If we say that we're a church that's prayer-focused, then we actually want to be a church that's, that's prayer-focused. And so we're continuing to try to elevate those things. Um, and so... And the truth is, is that God, God moves when his people pray. Do you guys believe that? Do you guys believe in the power of prayer? Um, over and over again, I've seen God do things uh, when we are on our knees praying. And I'm so encouraged. We've been praying for all of you. And I can already see that God is at work. God's working in your hearts. God is, God is doing things in our midst, in people's hearts. And so... The question really then is, is like, how should we pray, right? What do we really need? What, what should we be praying about? And we've been looking um, in Matthew chapter 6, and if, you're, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6 this morning, uh, we've been looking at the Lord's Prayer. Um, it's probably not really the Lord's Prayer. It should really be labeled the Disciples' Prayer, because it's a really a prayer for the disciples of, of Jesus. Um, but for some reason, we've attached to it the idea that it's called the Lord's Prayer. Um, but when we look at this, when we look in this prayer, we see six petitions, um, and the first three are related to God and His glory. Our Father in heaven, first one is, hallowed be thy name. And so, God, may your name be kept holy in my life, right? May your kingdom come. God, would your reign and rule increase in my life? And may your will be done. May, God, may I do your will, not my own will, on earth as it is in heaven. All of those petitions are focused on God and his glory. And in fact, the whole prayer is focused on God and his glory. And so these, these petitions, they're not selfish. Um, they, they're focused on what we really need to live a life that keeps God's name holy, bringing his kingdom and will on earth as it is in heaven. And so last week... Um, We looked at God's provision, and we said that that we need to ask God to provide uh, for our physical needs. And we know that every good and perfect gift comes from God the Father. Everything. God provides everything that you need. Everything that you had comes from the hand of God. And then we spent a bit more time looking at God's forgiveness, or God's pardon, if you will. Um, And daily, we we need to acknowledge... (laughs) the need for God to release us from the penalty of our sins. God paid the debt for your sins. 
And so we pray, God, forgive us. And not only that, when we realize that the, the enormity of the debt that's been paid for by God for our sins, it will cause us to move to others, right? It will cause us, it will compel us to forgive others when they sin against us. And so this morning, then, we're going to look to the future now. We're going to look to God's protection. Um, not only do we need God's forgiveness when we sin, um, we need more than that, right? We need preservation. We need deliverance. It's true that, that we need forgiveness when we do sin, but we also need to be delivered so that we don't sin. And so God, Jesus moves into this idea of, and lead us not into temptation. Now, if, you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and God has saved you from your sin, there ought to be this desire in your heart, right? There is a desire in your heart to not sin against the Lord. True? True. When I gave my life to Christ, I meant it, right? I meant it. I, I desired to honor him in everything that I did, even all the way as a six-year-old. I invited him into every room in my life, right? My work ethic, my finances, my relationships, my sexual desires, the things that my eyes see, what my ears hear. When you invite Jesus to come into your life and the Holy Spirit lives in you, you're inviting him into the, the whole part of you. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so God, God, have every part of my life, Lord. And I knew as a believer in Jesus Christ that that was not a license for me to go off and sin. But of course, as we all know, <laughs> temptation is real, right? There is temptation. There are natural, there's this natural man still. Um, and so there's a war that takes place. Anybody experienced that war? Uh, just a few of you. Wow. We got a holy crowd here. So the rest of you are either you are you have no idea what's going on and you are not saved or whoa, whoa. Or you just don't want to raise your hand, you just don't want to follow what the preacher says, right? No. There is a war that takes place when you invite Christ in, right? We're born. We're born with this propensity towards sin. And man, in the teenage years, there was, there's a struggle. Man, imagine the teen. How many of you guys are teenagers in here? Not a lot of teenagers in here this morning. Yeah, it's a struggle. And here I am, a believer in Jesus Christ, wanting to honor God with my life. And yet, there are the temptations. Um, there's a war that takes place in us. And so, we ask God then, hey, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We ask God to protect us, maybe, from ourselves and the devil. Now, when I first started into this, um, this is a very difficult phrase to understand, right? Would you agree with that? And lead us not into temptation? I mean, I'm wrestling with this phrase all week long. 
it doesn't seem to reconcile, right, with the rest of Scripture. And I thought I had it figured out on Friday, um, but when I was on the phone with my friend uh, Paul Miller um, yesterday down in Sheraton, uh, again, Paul just kind of opened my eyes up to a whole new way of looking at this phrase, and he sent me his message notes. And so now I'm a mess, and so I've, I think I've got this all figured out, and now I've got to spend all the rest of you know, Saturday and Sunday morning leading up to this, because um, I really think that he, he's right. Um, this is a difficult phrase to understand. At first glance, it would seem that God, would, would, that God could possibly lead us into temptation, right? Lead us not into temptation. Uh, like, it's difficult to understand. Our minds would quickly ask questions like this. Uh, does God lead us into temptation if we don't ask him? And maybe a second question would be, can a holy, righteous, completely pure, and undefiled God possibly lead anyone into temptation? Think about it. The simple answer is no. Very simple answer. Of course, our minds go to James chapter 1, right? In verse 13. This is why we would say no. Remember what it says in James chapter 1 and verse 13, and I think that is in your notes this morning. It says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Okay? So God never tempts anybody. So maybe we could rule that out and lead us not into temptation. Can God lead us into temptation? No. Scripture is very clear there. God doesn't tempt anyone. And so verse 14 of James chapter 1 maybe gives us a little bit of insight into, okay, so where does temptation come from, right? It says, but each one is tempted when, right, two ways. By his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Okay? So... Where does temptation come from? Our own evil desire. By his own evil desire. There is this internal drawing of our flesh to be tempted away from God to sin. And notice the last word in that sentence. What does it say? And he is dragged away and enticed. Okay? So there seems that there's something that's enticing him, right? There's something that's there's an external force that's pulling him away. And we know that that external force is the devil, the evil one who would entice us and draw us away from God. And so, first of all, it makes no sense to pray asking God not to try to trap us or to cause us to sin because James 1.13 clearly says that God would never do that. Okay? And so... Is that clear? Are we clear there? God will not draw us away into sin. Okay, so when you are drawn away to sin, don't ever point your finger at God and say, God, you're the one doing this to me. Don't do it. You're following a lie. Now, of course, part of the problem when we read this verse um, so now we need to really look at the word temptation. Uh, really, when we read this verse, our modern view of temptation skews 
this text. It's difficult. While it's true that this word can be used, right, in a sense, in the way that we think of temptation, which is to maybe endeavor or attempt to cause someone to sin, to tempt, to trap, to lead into temptation, that's not what the word meant in the first century Greek. Man, always that Greek drawing us like, why don't they just write it and why don't we just all understand Greek? It would be a lot simpler, wouldn't it? The word there in the Greek is the word parosmos. And actually, the word there, lead us not into temptation, is translated meaning the idea testing. Okay? Now it takes on a little bit of different meaning, doesn't it? So to try to learn the nature or character of, of someone or something by submitting such through an extensive idea of testing, right? So to test, to examine, to put to the test. Now, Jeff Gibson is a New Testament scholar, and uh, he would say that perezin always meant when applied to persons what we mean by the word test. That is, either a fact-seeking probing or approving that functionally had nothing to do with getting or causing or impelling someone to act in a particular way. I'm not going to read that again, but you get the idea. Um, rather, this proving had the intention or the effect of determining either how a person would act in certain circumstances or whether the character one professed or was known to bear was well established. He's a professor, so he, write, he talks like that. Um, Right? So it's very, it's very much a, a neutral thing. This word is, is neutral, right? To test. And so we, we see this example over and over in Scripture when we start. And so if we say, God, lead us not into testing, okay, that changes things a little bit, right? So Genesis 22 in verse 1 and 2. Abraham, you remember the story of Abraham and Isaac, and, and in Genesis 21, 22, 1, it says sometime later, God what? God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So here we see God taking Abraham and testing him, okay? Or in Matthew 16, in verse 1, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him to show them a sign from heaven. So they're going to come, and they're going to test him. Prove this to me. There's a probing. There's a, a proving that you're the Messiah. In, first, in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, we see this. It says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? And in 1 Peter 4.12, we see, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. And now we have the word trial, which could also be parosmos. You see where it gets difficult here? So Jesus is saying that we should, we should ask God not to allow our faith to be tested, right? Okay, so we know that it's temptation is not this temptation to, that God couldn't draw us into sin. So are we saying then that, that God, lead us not into, test, into time of testing? 
Are we saying that, that God should not allow our faith to be tested? Simple answer, no. Okay, just a simple answer to that. Okay? We know that's not true because James 1 and verse 2, what does it say? It says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials, parasmas, testing of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. That sounds like testing is kind of a good thing. Sounds like temptation, if you will, is kind of a good thing. Testing is kind of a good thing. All right? 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Same word there. All kinds of tests. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So now this testing, these trials, produce praise, honor, and glory to God. Why would we ask God then, lead us not into these things? Lead us not into the time of testing or trial. Why would we pray against God proving our faith when it results in his praise and glory? Or, or, so, what is it, so what does this mean? If it doesn't mean that God don't try to make a sin and it doesn't mean God don't let us give in when Satan tries to, uh, to make a sin and it doesn't mean God don't test our faith, what does it mean? And I think that's where we've got to understand the context. We, when you're looking at a piece of Scripture, you always have to look at it in the context of the greater good of Scripture and actually in the unity of the whole of Scripture. And so the audience and context of this phrase, um, as we've said, Jesus is, is teaching a part of a bigger message here called the Sermon on the Mount, Right? Listen to what Jesus says earlier in his sermon. He says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Who could possibly understand the law and the prophets? The Jews, right? Theirs was the law. Theirs was the prophets. Jesus' audience here is Jewish. He's showing them that he is the fulfillment, not the abolition of God's law. All of the ceremonial laws, all of them, the moral law, all is met in Christ. And so if you're a Jew now, and you're sitting, and you're listening to what Jesus is saying, what are you hearing? Okay, let's look back at the Lord's Prayer real quick. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be kept holy. What does that sound like? Sounds like the third commandment, doesn't it? What's the third commandment? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God 
in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Jesus is taking something very familiar to them and teaching them something here. Last week we saw the Jew, the, the idea that, that the Jews would rely on Jesus daily for bread, right? And it was a reference we referred back to the manna that fell in the desert. And so he says, give us today our daily bread. How are these Jews hearing these words? They're thinking back to Moses. They're thinking back to manna. They're thinking, oh, wow, yeah, God provides for it, provided for us daily. Jesus is leading his disciples here and telling them that the law, I want to put this law on your heart. And so this teaching comes right in the middle of Jesus explaining to the Jewish people what it looks like when God writes the law that he gave to the Jews, not on tablets of stone, but on the hearts of men. And for us, 2,000 years later, not Jewish, we lose sight of all of this when we read this. But if I'm a Jew listening to Jesus, here's what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about God's faithfulness, right? God's faithfulness in bringing me out of Egypt. I'm thinking about God's provision in the desert. We're getting to the point here. We're almost there. And when Jesus says, lead us not into temptation, not into testing, I'm thinking about all the times that my ancestors have tested God. See where we're going now? Their minds would go back to Exodus chapter 17, right? The children of Israel have seen 10 plagues performed by God. They've seen the Red Sea part. They've seen the entire Egyptian army drown. They've seen God provide manna in the desert and quail in the evening every day. And yet in Exodus chapter 17, 1, we see then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Right? Same word in the Greek. Why do you test the Lord? And so he named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? If you're a Jew, your mind goes to Deuteronomy chapter 6. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him in Massa. You should diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and statutes which he has commanded you. Or, if you're a Jew and you're sitting there listening to Jesus say, lead us not into time of testing, you're thinking about the 12 spies, right? Who went to Canaan. Remember that story? God promised them. God made a promise to the people of Israel to give them the land of Canaan. God had made that promise. And so they sent the 12 spies in, but when they come back, what happens? 
There we go. It's the old, it's the old song. Ten were bad and two were good. What did they see when they got to Canaan? You guys don't even know that one. Ten were, <laughs> ten were bad and two were good. You don't remember that? Did you guys grow up in a Catholic church or... You remember it. Ah, there we go. Oh, the Nineveh. <laughs> I think the Mennonite church even had, that, had this thing going. That's where I learned that song. Anyway, back to the point. Did I just do that? Sorry, that was... God, forgive me. Yeah, but these spies came back with a report, didn't they? Ten of them said, there's no way we're going in there. There's no way we're going to go into that promised land. We know God's promised this to us. We're not going there. There's giants there. We don't think that God's powerful enough to take us through that. God won't, God won't give the land to us. And so... <laughs> They come back, and these spies convince the people that there are giants in the land and that, that they would be killed if they went in. And here's what the Lord says. <laughs> well, and so the Lord is angry. He's ready, to, he's ready to put an end to Israel. He's ready to, to kill these people. What happens? Moses steps in, doesn't he? And he, he convinces God. He says, what will happen? What will the nation say about you if you slay all these people? And so the Lord says, I've pardoned them according to your word. But indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurn, spurn me see it. Who got to go into the land of Canaan? The two that were right. Caleb and Joshua enjoyed the promised land. Why? Because they didn't put the Lord, their God, to the test. And so if I'm a Jew and I'm listening to Jesus is teaching me to pray, lead us not into testing, that's what I'm thinking about. Psalm 78, then he led them with a cloud by day and all the night with a light of fire and he split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them abundant drink like the ocean depth. He brought forth streams also from the walk and rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. Yet they still continued to sin against him, to rebel against the Most High in the desert. And in their heart, they put God to the test by asking food according to their desire. He also drove out the nations before them and appointed them for an inheritance by measurement. And he made the tribes of Israel dwell in their tents. Yet they tempted, there it is again, and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies. And so when Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, lead us not into temptation, he's teaching them to say this, Father, prevent us from putting you to the test 
by doubting your ways and your faithfulness and turning away from your promises and your word. And so when we pray these things, we're praying for God to help us remember that God is faithful, that we can trust God. And so this sixth petition, God's teaching us to, to cry out to him, right, for guidance. Guide us away from testing. Guide us away from our unbelief. And guide us towards following him in faith. And so what we're really saying when we say, Lord, lead us not into temptation. We're saying, Lord, rescue us from our unbelief. Don't let me fall away from you. Keep me from not believing your promises. Don't let me doubt you. Do you think that prayer is appropriate for today? Or is it just for those Jewish people? How many of you, all right, let's raise the hand thing again. How many of you doubt God's promises at times in your life? How many of you know things that God said to you about who you are in Christ? And yet, what do we do? We doubt that those things are true. If you put it in that context, Lord, don't lead, don't lead me towards temptation to not believe the things that you said about me. God, don't lead me into that testing. Don't let me test you, God. Test your faithfulness. And so there's this, this internal inclination for us not to trust God, to doubt him. It was true for the Jews who tested God, and it's true for us. It happens all the time. But we can't just put it all on ourselves. There's an external force as well, right? There is this pulling, this force that's at work against us. And so Jesus says here, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Rescue us from the devil's wicked schemes who would desire to drag us away into testing God and into unbelief, into the, the, the age-old lie, did God really say that? Deliver us from this evil one. Each day we need to be reminded <laughs> that there is evil and that this evil is intelligent. There's a force of wickedness that moves, not randomly, but intentionally with deliberation in your life. The doing of God's will is being undone by the devil, by the evil one, who wouldn't want us to pray, God, may your will be done as on earth as it is in heaven. Satan hates that prayer. He hates it when we pray that. And he's going to do everything that he can to test us and to draw us away from believing that, from believing what God says, from believing God's promises, God's will for our lives. Ephesians 6.12 says that our struggles is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and the, and the 
and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The scriptures teach that even when you belong to Christ, the devil, Satan, his demons, will continue to assault you. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes of the danger, right? And now, going back to last week's message, and this is why it's so important for us to forgive. He talks about the danger of unforgiveness in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and he encourages the church to forgive the one who sinned against him. Verse 11 brings clarity as to the why. Here's what it says. In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. When we harbor unforgiveness in our hearts, the devil is winning. We're falling into his schemes. We're moving towards bitterness in our lives. And so this disciple's prayer, Jesus is reminding his disciples and us that we are engaged in a spiritual battle. And it's much deeper than any conflict that you might see that you have with another person. There's an inner struggle going on within ourselves to doubt God, to not trust his promises, to test God. There's the cravings of our sinful nature. There's the lust of our eyes. There's the pride over what we have or do. All of those things are at work. And we have an external force, an enemy that's desiring to pull us away from God. It's a spiritual battle with an enemy who will stop at nothing to derail what? God's kingdom agenda in this world. God doesn't want you to pray the first three petitions of this prayer. He doesn't want your heart to be on fire for his kingdom. Why would he? He doesn't want people to be saved. He doesn't want people to be rescued from hell. And so... What we really need in prayer is God's protection, according to this petition. God, protect me. Protect me from myself, my self-doubt, and protect me from the evil one who would desire to steal away any joy that I might have in the faith. We need to be prepared and eager for the fight. We need to be able to stand firm to pass these tests (laughs) that are going to come. And you can't do it by yourself. Our ability to face the trials of life with faith, to respond to temptation with obedience, um, is not the result of spiritual maturity or mastery over this or that sin, our faith and obedience are always a result of God's protection and God's deliverance. We're relying on God, folks. Scripture makes it very clear that greater is the one that's in me than the one that's in the world. Now, oftentimes, we think that we can, in our own flesh, outwit the devil. We can just do it on our own. Stop doing that. You aren't going to win. You'll lose every time. 
trust in Jesus. Trust that his grace is sufficient for you to meet you in your time of need. Trust that his power is perfected in your weakness. Humble yourself before the Lord. He'll lift you up in due time. See, God didn't just deliver you at the cross. God delivers you every day because of the cross. And each day, this disciple's prayer reminds us that we are in a spiritual battle and one that requires spiritual tactics. That's why we have to get on our knees and pray. To do God's work, you desperately need His protection, His power from temptation, His deliverance from the attacks of the enemy. And prayer and the Word of God are your weapons. I love the fact that um, Jesus taught this, this prayer with plur plurality. Don't you love that? Don't you just see the intentionality in it? Our Father, lead us not into temptation. I'm glad he didn't say, hey, lead me not into temptation. Because this prayer reminds me that, that I'm not alone in this battle, and neither are any of you. We're not alone in it. So often when we get dragged away and enticed, we want to isolate ourselves. We want to kind of think, I'm just going to try to get this thing together on my own. Man, if I can just get it together. Stop it. You can't do it. As a kid, um, this last verse, of our, well, i got two verses yet I want to share with you. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Um, I probably quoted this verse more than I quoted, quoted uh, John 3, 16 or any other verse in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, I think it's in your outline. It is. It says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And notice this next phrase here. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Man, I memorized this verse in Awanas way back when I was a little kid. And man, I quoted this thing all the time during high school. This was my go-to verse. My heart's desire was to honor God. I wanted his name to be holy in my life. I wanted his kingdom to reign in my life. I sought to do his will. But man, the, the temptations, they're strong. Powerful forces trying to draw you away from God's desire for your life. Sometimes I won. Sometimes I didn't doesn't change the fact that God was faithful. doesn't change the fact that God will provide a way of escape every time. This verse helped me to see before I ever went into the temptation, to see ahead of time. Okay, headed down a path here. God, I need you crying out for God to, to deliver me. 
And so my, my encouragement to you is to pray this prayer. Ask God to help you stand firm. Ask God to keep you from unbelief. Ask God to rescue you, deliver you from the evil one when he comes. And so cry out to God for deliverance. But I'd also say this. This is the, the plural part of this prayer. Cry out to others for prayer. I wasn't alone, fortunately, in high school. I had some good friends, John, Craig, Jerry, um, to walk with me. We were in Bible studies together. We held each other accountable. We prayed for each other. And so we weren't alone. I think about Moses, right? Going all the way back to Moses again in Exodus 17. Remember that? They're taking the land of Canaan. <laughs> Moses is instructed to pray, to lift up, to lift up his staff, right? And, and as he's doing this, as long as he could keep his hands up, they were winning the battle, right? Hands went down, they would lose the battle. And this beautiful text here, when Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him. They, he's got some friends here, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up. One on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. And so Joshua overcame the Amalekites' army with the sword. Do you see the picture there? Man, that's why corporate prayer is so important, folks. Moses isn't doing this all by himself. He has Aaron and Hur, two brothers, standing there, holding his arms up in the battle. You know what? I see that happening here. The Lord's at work in this church. Moses, Aaron, her relationships, they're being formed amongst men and women. Um, corporate prayer is increasing. Community groups are encouraging and praying for one another. And when these things are happening, be assured that the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is now here. And and then, of course, in the text, and we'll end this way, um, says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Not in your Bible there. We'll just put it on the end because that's the prayer of faith, right? Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory forever. You see it? It all points back to God. And so as we end today, I want to invite you to stand as the worship team comes. I want us to pray this prayer one more time. Again, as I've said all along, this is a, this is a model. This isn't the substance. This is a model for us to pray. Here we go. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. When the mountains fall and the tempest roars, you are with me. 